0: Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode.
1: Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Jeff Patak, Global Director of Manager Research for Morningstar Research Services.
2: And I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar, Inc.
1: Our guest in the podcast today is Mayor Statman, the Glenn Klimick Professor of Finance at Santa Clara University and a specialist in behavioral finance. Mayer's research focuses on how investors and managers make financial decisions and how these decisions are reflected in financial markets. It has been published in the Journal of Finance, the Financial Journal, the Journal of Portfolio Management, and many other journals. Mayer has also received numerous awards for his research, including three Graham and Dodd Awards and the Matthew R. MacArthur Industry Pioneer Award. His latest book, Finance for Normal People, was just released in paperback. Mayer, welcome to The Long View.
3: I'm delighted to be with you, Jeff and Christine.
1: So let's start with a bit of stage setting. The first wave of behavioral finance put a, a pretty big emphasis on investors' behavioral mistakes, contrasting rational with irrational behavior. But you prefer a different way of framing the issue. You think most investors are behaving normally. It, it so happens they're just attaching expressive or emotional benefits to their money versus. You know, what might be thought of as strictly utilitarian benefits, it's probably easiest to grasp attaching emotional benefit to our investments. So would an example be a young person who derives a lot of comfort from having cash on hand, even though all the finance literature would say that he or she should invest quite aggressively?
3: Well, yes, so, so let, let me just clarify those concepts. First, uh, we are all normal, uh, it is not most of us, it's all normal. And and normal people want three kinds of benefits, as you mentioned. We want utilitarian benefits like high returns, uh, but we also want uh, expressive and emotional benefits uh, such as uh, to be true to our values, to have a life that uh, conforms to where we want to go. And so we must distinguish uh, those benefits and see uh, the difference between... Preferences, wants, and and errors. Uh, I, I illustrate it with uh, with lottery tickets. Uh, in standard finance, people are rational, and rational people don't buy lottery tickets. Uh, but if you are like you and me, you uh, have uh, at least once uh, bought a lottery ticket, and if not, uh, try it.
2: I have not. Uh, <laughs> I have to say, I actually haven't. Oh well,
3: try, try it. Try it. It will give you hope for an entire week. Uh, that is the emotional benefit of of buying uh, and holding a lottery ticket until you find that you have lost. and And you are you are having expressive benefits because you know that you're in the game that that you have a chance to win. And of course, there might be utilitarian benefits if you happen to be the one who wins uh, the grand prize or just uh, one one below it. And so as long as those wants are within reason, in other words, you are not sacrificing your desire not to be poor for the desire to be rich, uh, you are fine. And so if you buy a, a $1 worth of lottery tickets or even five every, every week, a month, uh, that is fine, but but uh, of course you don't ever do it, and so we have to we have to kind of move ourselves from rational, as in computer-like, to irrational. Uh, and and in my mind, when people use the word rational and irrational in daily language, they they uh, talk about rational as the equivalent of what I call normal smart uh, versus normal uh, stupid, and so we are neither. Computer-like rationale, not bumbling irrational, Uh, we are all normal, uh, looking, having wants such as not to be poor and to be rich and uh, making our way towards them and often making mistakes along the way.
2: So, I think emotional um, benefits that we might derive from our money that seems a little easier to to get my head around. The expressive benefits um, maybe are a little trickier. so, can you give us a few more examples of someone making a decision that's financial that doesn't strictly have a utilitarian benefit, but the benefit is also expressive?
3: well, socially responsible investing is is the most obvious example uh, that is you know that there are people, uh, and not all ones are the same, but, but for many people, being true to their values is really very important. Uh, and so people express themselves uh, as being socially uh, responsible. Uh, that, that really matters. Now, think about, about expressive benefits in another arena. Uh, think about, about cars. Uh, think about uh, uh, watches. Uh, think about uh, other consumer goods, whether it is uh, bags and so and so on. Uh, all of them uh, say something about who you are, uh, and, and in this sense, they they are expressive. And expressive does not necessarily mean sort of luxury products. That is, <clears throat> you can actually express yourself having. Uh, an, an old Toyota, uh, as I do, uh, which kind of says to me and other people, um, I am uh, too good to be fooled by the Mercedes-Benz or, or a Bentley. Uh, I'm too smart to buy uh, an active fund that promises me to beat the market. That is, uh, the way I express my smarts is actually by sticking to index funds.
2: So we want to talk a lot about investing in this conversation, but you mentioned cars. So I think we should talk about cars and houses in that these seem like areas where investors do really get into having expressive decisions sort of intertwined with the, the sort of uh, utilitarian benefits that they might derive from those things.
3: Well, yes. So, so let, let me speak about expressive benefits in consumer goods that is more familiar. And, and so, of course, owning a house is different from renting a house, even though in both cases you have, you have shelter. But there is some, some emotional benefit, pride, and some uh, expressive benefits uh, such that uh, you say, yeah, I own the place. Uh, I might have a mortgage on it, but I own the place. I'm a homeowner. Uh, and that is um, some status that is dear to me. Uh, And so if you look at houses, if you look at cars, of course, people express themselves uh, in in the kind of cars they uh, drive, uh, the clothing they wear, uh, and so on. But I would say that this uh, applies to uh, financial products and services as well. And our sort of reluctance uh, in admitting it might well be because we are stuck in that framework that says that financial products, unlike cars and, and houses, are, are utilitarian alone. They are just, you know, when you choose whether to buy a house or rent, you just make uh, decisions based on the kinds of uh, money that it will cost to buy and maintain a house versus uh, versus renting. So think, for example about hedge funds and other alternatives. They, of course, have utilitarian benefits.
2: Potentially.
3: Potentially. That is right. People, If you ask people uh, why they buy them, they will tell you likely that they have high returns and low risk. And they might actually believe that, although the evidence suggests otherwise. But it is also the case that, that in the United States, saying you know, you're, you're in a gathering and, and, I, and I approach and I say, hi, I'm Mayor Stuttman and I'm a rich man. Well, you know, that, that is gauche. That is very socially unacceptable. But if we talk about investments and I let's drop that I'm into a hedge fund, then you know that I am a reasonably rich man uh, because, of course, not everyone is eligible to be a qualified investor who is, who is allowed to buy those, uh, those hedge funds. And so I kind of hinted at the same thing, that I'm a rich man, but without saying that. So it has it has expressive benefits. Well, houses, of course, are both a consumption good and an investment. And, of course, it has those expressive and emotional benefits that I mentioned. You know, money market funds also have expressive and emotional benefits. A money market fund, if I have... If I'm a young person and have most of my money in money market fund, you might say that it is not wise, but at least it gives me that uh, sense of calm that uh, the markets go up or down a huge amount every day and definitely over a year or two, uh, whereas my money market fund just chugs along, earning uh, some some, uh, minuscule rates of return, but at least I have that uh, peace of mind that comes with
1: it, so is it fair to say that expressive benefits and maybe our tendency to attach undue importance to those sorts of benefits that it's maybe more of an issue among sort of wealthier investors, those with have greater wherewithal, like institutional investors who are more given to sort of comparison and and perhaps sort of envy uh, it, for lack of a better term,, uh, whereas individual investors are perhaps less given to that. and, and perhaps they give in more to things like attach undue significance to things like emotional benefits.
3: No, I wouldn't say that. That that is institutional investors are individual investors under their professional uh, clothes, uh, and so institution. You know, they are not computers that that are institutional investors. These are people, and of course, uh, they they have the same kinds of desire for those three kinds of benefits as the rest of us. I was once on uh, in a discussion at some conference about those issues, and the discussant was a a manager of, of a large pension fund. Then he insisted that all they want is alpha. All they want is the utilitarian benefits of high returns. And I said, you must be kidding, you know, because... If you just observe the behavior of pension managers, uh, when they compare themselves to other pension managers, as you mentioned, it is not just that uh, if I have an alpha of 2%, it is better in a utilitarian sense than having an alpha of 1% of my neighbor, but there is also a sense of of pride, uh, of I am a winner, Uh, rather than a a loser. Uh, And and so I don't think that there's much of a difference. And and envy, of course, is not something that was invented by institutions. Envy is in us by God or evolution, probably to do some some good things overall. That that is, envy uh, prompts us to work harder and and try to catch up uh, to the status of the people that we uh, that we envy of course we know that uh, in emotions <clears throat> you have you have the downside and the downside is that if you are someone who is very prone to envy you drive yourself to accomplishment which is good but some people never pause to celebrate what they have achieved and they always compare themselves to somebody Who is richer than them or higher status. And and so as my mom used to say, why do you compare yourself to people who have more than so many people who have less? So if you're to try
1: to place your framework in a context that I think is familiar to a number of individual investors, that being their defined contribution plan, and they they basically took this construct to heart and they said, you know, I want to make sure that I don't get myself tripped up by Seeking out these expressive or, or emotional benefits, I, I want I want to be as circumspect as possible in making choices within my def- contribution plan. What are the couple things that you would suggest they focus on?
3: What really is important is to realize the trade offs between those those benefits. Uh, and so, for example, if you have a, a young person in a four hundred one k or similar pro- program, a, and he or she uh, is pretty much entirely in, in uh, treasury bills or, or money market funds. Uh, well, their want of uh, of tranquility is quite uh, natural. But I think that what they are giving up, of course, is the chance not just to be rich, but the chance to have a reasonable amount of money that will sustain them in retirement. And so it is it is important for people to understand the trade-offs that exists between ones and and to choose a wisely among them.
2: Speaking of the defined contribution space, the 401k space, one thing we've seen is this change really where you've got more and more investors who are being opted into a target date fund. And when we look at how investors tend to do in those funds and in terms of how they tend to behave, what we see is that they're really pretty complacent. So they get opted in and they kind of stay the course. Do you have any thoughts on why investors seem to do so well with target date funds and why, in some respects, they seem to solve some of these issues that we've just been talking about?
3: Well, complacent is not all bad. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm complacent too. Uh, I, do not, uh, I do not get out of the market when, when I think that the market is high and I do not get in when I think that it is low and so on. And So you might say that I'm complacent, but I think that it is just wise not to do Uh, more than is necessary. And so, what uh, investors say uh, when they uh, buy uh, target date funds is, you know, uh, in the old days, we used to buy a turntable and an amplifier and and so on and combine them into a hi-fi system that we like. But I think that most people would rather have some Integrated unit that has all of those components already there because what they really want is just to listen to music. And the same applies here. If people just want to be well prepared for, for retirement. A target date fund can be a perfectly reasonable for them to do. And indeed, in trying to perfect it, some people might end up. With something that is a much worse, that that is, if they want to target date fund, but they also want to be really rich, and and they move to some to some investments that promise a huge returns, uh, they may end up behind rather than ahead.
1: So it sounds like that's an example where you know an emotional benefit that that they confer, uh, perhaps because this approach boasts simplicity, there's not as many decisions that have to be made. That's comforting in a way to them. It's an example of how it can actually work to their benefit rather than Precisely. their detriment, wouldn't you agree, even if they are foregoing some utilitarian benefit? Yeah, the,
3: the, there's not necessarily a trade-off where expressive and emotional benefits uh, uh, can be acquired only at the expense of utilitarian benefits. That is, if you guide people right, uh, for example, into target date funds, uh, they gain both the utilitarian benefits that are likely to be reasonably prepared for retirement better than than many alternatives and at the same time they have a sense that uh, of calm you know that they are on their way to doing uh, the right thing. So uh, precisely that, that is for me as I mentioned before uh, investing in funds that have a very low fees says uh, one I'm going to get higher utilitarian benefits and higher returns second, I am saying that I am too smart to try to beat the market.
2: When we look at the marketplace um, and we look at fund flows, which we have pretty good data on here at Morningstar, it seems like um, we're, observing a pattern where investors are making better choices overall. So we've been observing this contrarian pattern where even as U.S. stocks have risen, investors seem to be preferring international stocks and bonds. And we also have seen this steady flow of assets to very low-cost products. So do you think that things are getting better or is it just something about the current climate that um, maybe will be short lived? I
3: think, I think that it says that things are getting better. Uh, so, normal investors are generally intelligent or, or really all intelligent, uh, and they're generally smart. And, uh, normal investors uh, like us, uh, we can learn. Uh, and so, it, it has taken quite a while. That is, I've been preaching uh, indexing and low-cost to my students forever, and I've been practicing it longer than that. Uh, and eventually, it seems to be uh, catching on, uh, which is a wonderful thing, that, that finally people get the idea that the Earth is, in fact, round, uh, not flat. So so we, we get that, and now... Uh, we are doing better. And so it presses down. It makes competition among active investors that much fiercer, which I say is, uh, is fine. If it means that, that individual investors are going to have uh, more secure retirement and achieve their, their financial goals, they'll be able to leave uh, money for the kids and support them as they grow up and, and and so on. So so people are, in fact, getting getting the message. They get the message that trying to time the market is not a very good idea. They get the message that those promises of what do you care if I charge you 2% in fees when I make you 7% more than other funds, that the 2% are the bird in the hand and the 7 percent promise. That's, that's two birds in the bush. Uh, and so altogether, I'm very, very pleased uh, to see that finally the preaching of people like, like Jack Bogles and, and of course academics uh, are getting through.
1: So what do you make of the push towards more personalized forms of investing? And I think that probably the more the most familiar of those would be ESG investing, not that it's personalized to every single investor that would pursue that sort of format, but the idea there, right, is to appeal to an investor's preferences when it comes to environmental, social, and governance issues. And so there's some data to suggest that there's not necessarily a performance reduction associated with investing in that fashion. So is it is it possible for ESG investors to have it all utilitarian benefits? as well as emotional and possibly even expressive ones, uh, if they like to tell others that their portfolio is, is somehow virtuous or upholds a higher ESG standard?
3: Well, yes. You know, think about it this way. Wealth is just a way station to well-being. And you gain well-being when your needs for, for utilitarian, expressive, and benefits are satisfied. Now, some people say, and typically people in standard finance will say, when you invest, keep out those expressive and emotional benefits. Just invest to make the most wealth. And once you have attained the most wealth, then you can use it to acquire those expressive and emotional benefits. For example, donating money to causes that make you feel true to your value. Uh, whether it is uh, fighting uh, climate change or or avoiding tobacco or or weapons or or whatever it is. Well, you know, I I have a standard uh, example here. I say, imagine that it is an Orthodox Jew who is facing you and you say, listen, pork tastes good and it costs less than kosher beef. So why don't you just buy and eat the pork and donate the savings to the synagogue? Well, everyone understands that that is absurd, uh, that the production of wealth and the consumption of wealth are intertwined. And in some cases, they can be separated, but in other cases, they cannot. And if you have investors for whom investing in an oil company whose work, uh, in fact, increases uh, the, the likelihood of uh, climate change... That it feels to them like like pork in the mouth of of an Orthodox Jew, then it is fine, you know. So 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 they sacrifice a one percentage point return when they buy an SRI or ESG fund. But it, the alternative would be that they're going to gain that one percent in their investment and then spend that one percent uh, on on their causes. And so I'm I'm very agnostic about that. If that is how you feel, then it is fine. If you find that eating non-kosher food is uh, taking away from your expressive and emotional benefits, uh, and you choose to be kosher despite its cost, that is fine. And the same applies to SRI or ESG.
2: Mayor, have you given any thought to the FIRE movement, this financial independence retire early movement? What What do you think of it?
3: <laughs> well, I suppose I suppose it. It works for some people. It surely does not work for me because I am beyond the, the normal retirement age, and I'm still working. Uh, and so, when, when people uh, are in a situation where they, they really detest what it is that they are doing, young people who are in a job where they make a good amount of money but, but hate to go to work or to do their work every morning. Well, maybe it makes, it makes sense for them, and then they, they pinch pennies uh, once they, they quit their job and, and retire and take really a pleasure in those, in those little things in life. Well, that's very nice, but if I want to help my daughter buy a house, and she might not be in the fire movement, and I don't have the money to do that, that, that really feels uh, quite awful. So, so in, in my case, for example, you know, I was I graduated from school in Israel. I had a job as a as a business analyst. I uh, liked it for a few months because I was learning something, and then it did not. Well, I could have said, "I'll just I'll just work in this boring job, uh, save like mad, and then and then retire." Uh, but instead, I said, eh, "What? Let me try something else, like like traveling to the United States, taking that risk and." Uh, and finding uh, my vocation, uh, which I did. And so this is why I choose not to be in the fire movement. I choose to be in the movement of, of work until you die.
2: One thing I've been thinking about in in that area, though, is, is the reason that these people are so enthusiastic about saving for retirement is that retirement is closer at hand. So I wonder if there's something to be harnessed there, that you can get younger folks excited about saving for goals that are closer at hand than retirement 40 years from now. Is there something that you and other behavioral researchers could take away from that, like the shortening of time horizon?
3: Possibly. Yeah, possibly. That, that is, but I think that again, normal people are intelligent and normal people generally can think about the short term and the long term. And so, and, and in fact, saving for retirement, and that, that is something that is not sufficiently emphasized, saving for retirement gives you benefits, not just in retirement, it gives you expressive and emotional benefits right now when you are in your 20s and 30s and 40s. Because what it means is I have some money uh, in an account such that if I want money for uh, a down payment for a house, if I want money to help my kids, if I want money just to fix my car uh, without which I will not have a job, then I have that. that. That gives me peace of mind that somebody who lives truly paycheck to paycheck uh, does not have. And so we have to, we have to emphasize the, the fact that, that those benefits of retirement that we think of as being long-term, in fact, provide benefits right now in the short-term in that sense of security.
1: One of the mistakes that we do see individuals make is they miscalibrate the benefits that they will derive from some investment they make. And so I think an example that's been cited recently on this podcast is the RV purchase amongst retirees, right? They they think that's going to be a wonderful investment to make and and they make that purchase and then they find that they're totally unsatisfied by it. And so do you think that an increasing focus for behavioral researchers, so to speak, will be to help investors to better calibrate those sorts of investments that they're making so that they're deriving a commensurate benefit from them.
3: Yes, I, I think I think that that is one one of the of the major findings from, from research that people are very poor at figuring out what would actually uh, please them. And so they they would buy an RV for example thinking, well, then they don't really need a house even. They're just going to to uh, drive around all all over the United States. Uh, And once they do that, they find that it is not nearly as pleasurable as as they thought. And then they kind of feel stuck. They they might actually feel regret for having bought it. They now feel that it's going to be even more regret if they end up selling it at a major uh, loss. Uh, and so on, and so whenever whenever it is possible, try it first you know you can you can uh, if you think about buying in an, an rV, how about if you rent it uh for a few weeks uh, try it uh, you might find that that is exactly right for you or that is a, a nuisance yeah you know, that then you don't get yourself into. Uh, buying it and then and then regretting it and then making unwise decisions because you feel stuck uh, and and so on yeah so 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 we don't really know ourselves you know that, that is what I emphasize to my my students, especially the undergraduate students say when they go to an internship, I say you're going to learn a whole lot about the world, but you're going to learn even more about yourself what what pleases you what gets you up in the morning and what, what you find uh, boring and that really varies from person to person and pretty much the only way to find out is, of course, to reflect on it, but sometimes you need to try it. I did not know that what I would actually want to be uh, would be a professor, but but along my studies at at Columbia... And I kind of uh, figured it out when students I was uh, tutoring said, uh, boy, you seem to explain it better than my professor. And I thought, well, yeah, I I might have some some talents. Uh, And it also gives me great satisfaction to be able to educate people.
2: So thinking about the investment industry, advisors really love to talk about the value that they add with some of this behavioral coaching. So do you think it's legitimate or are they perhaps overhyping what they're able to do to help enact behavioral change in their clients?
3: Well, I think that those behavioral changes and behavioral guidance uh, is what good financial advisors do. I I describe financial advisors as financial uh, physicians, uh, and I say that uh, very much like physicians, where good physicians are on the frontier of knowledge of medicine, but they also have this bedside manner, the hand-holding that promotes well-being. Good financial advisors, of course, have to be on the frontier of knowledge of finance. They have to know what what stocks are, what bonds are, what, what portfolios do, and so on. But they also have to be attuned to what it is that uh, clients say in words and and what they don't say and and gently and gently probe. You know, in, in every family there are there are points uh, of pain. Uh, there might be a disabled child, there might be a divorce, uh, there might be a serious illness, there might be an early death. And conversations between clients and advisors should not be along the lines of, so what's the Fed going to do and, and uh, how are you doing? Well, of course, we are all doing fine. If, if they're going to do that, they're going to just lose to robo robo-advisors who do that and more. much less. That is, if you're going to be a financial advisor, you have to be a well-being advisor, not just a wealth advisor. And I think that some financial advisors today are still resisting this move to become well-being advisors because they take pride in being able to generate alpha. But more and more... Uh, advisors realize that the skill set that is required to be a good advisor is different from being a portfolio manager, somebody in the back office who is trying to generate alpha. It really has to do with this hand-holding and bedside manner. And investors really uh, need that. You know, this this really is not fluff. This is very important contribution to clients' well-being.
1: So if I'm an investor and I'm looking to engage an advisor and, and I'm trying to heed some of the lessons you're imparting here, naturally I would want to make sure that my advisor is upholding the standard that you described, that they truly are a well-being advisor. So if someone asked you, they, they said, I'm looking for an advisor, I want to make sure that they're doing a good job of advising me, especially maybe in the emotional behavioral side so I don't succumb to some of these impulses and make mistakes. How would you advise them? What would you tell them to look for in the advisors based on your experience working with advisors and counseling them yourselves, yourself, I should say?
3: Well, the first thing I would say that if an advisor says that his or her major service is to generate them higher returns, then then they should end the meeting then and there and not waste time. What I think investors should look for is advisors are on the frontier of knowledge of finance, that is, they better know things that have to do with portfolios and more. They have to know what what trusts are, what tax implications are, and so on. But they are people who express their interest in guiding people, educating people, being teachers. So in this sense, advisors are very much like me. They They are teachers. And, and they do more than teachers because I don't really inquire about people's uh, personal lives, uh, but they have to. And so if, if they feel really, really uncomfortable sharing their own stories about, about life because, because we all have those points of pain, then sort of prompting gently uh, clients to share theirs these are not advisors that I, would, that I would recommend because all of those issues, you know, that, that is whether it is a disabled child or a divorce and so on, all of them have financial implications, of course. So it's not just kind of prurient interest in people's, in people's lives. These are things that are really matter in designing good financial plans. And good advisors do that. And clients can judge it by the kinds of questions that uh, advisors ask when when they meet and and how advisors describe their practice. And advisors need not be psychologists for that. These are the kinds of things that that a friend, a really close friend, would do. That is, we we distinguish friends from acquaintances by that disclosure of of intimate uh, detail where, where you can tell people not just about those things that go well in life, but those things that are not. Uh, it is not just a matter of, will I have money for the kid to go to college. It is a matter of, I have a kid who has all the money that is necessary to go to college, but I cannot even get him to go to community college. These are the kinds of things that that really that really matter, and I think that uh, people should look for advisors who understand that and who practice that.
2: Earlier on, we talked about um, the success of some of the advances that have been made in four hundred and one k plans. So the auto enrollment, the usage of target date funds. It seems like the retirement decumulation piece is an area where there's more work to be done, where potentially there are more nudges that we can do to help improve people's decision-making at that life stage. Do you have any thoughts on that, on on what steps should be taken to try to improve outcomes in the broad sense?
3: Well, you know, I think, in, in fact, I am on the committee. Of, of retirement savings at our university. I have been pressing for a very uh, simplified menu of a low-cost, well-diversified funds. And I think that that is what is necessary. That, that is, there is a fine line between being uh, libertarian and, and overly paternalistic. That is, leaving all choices to people. And, and in fact, we had, now we had fewer, but, but we had a menu of uh, several hundred mutual funds people could choose from. Uh, now we have fewer of them, but to my mind, not sufficiently few. And so nudging, guiding people to a portfolio that is simple and Recognizing, for example, that some people are say socially responsible, so so the menu should include a, a socially responsible fund. But I think that that when it comes to other desires, such as I like to play the market, I like to move money from here to there, I think I think that that here it is fine for for an employer to say those kinds of games. Uh, You can play with money that is outside your 401k rather than money that is in. And so we are not going to to provide uh, for those uh, opportunities within within the program. And so there's really a need to to simplify things. And I know I've I've gotten into into debates when, when I said that the menu should be restricted in this way, uh, and someone from, from a family of mutual funds said, you know, if they invest with us, they're going to get 50 basis points more a year and, and so on. But I think that choice should be given to people who can exercise it uh, responsibly. Uh, you would not let a three-year-old cross the street uh, on their own. And I think that touch of paternalism is not all bad.
2: So how about, though, the period when I'm ready to retire? That's, I guess, what I was thinking about, that people sometimes make poor choices at that juncture. They take out too much. They don't know how much they can take out. There's a lot of academic research that would point point them to maybe including an annuity as part of their retirement income stream. How do we help people at that life stage once they are getting ready to leave the confines of that plan?
3: Yeah, thank you. That's a very good one because, uh, indeed, in behavioral finance, we emphasize those issues of self-control. And usually what we talk about is how you should have more self-control to get you to save more and and invest it uh, well. Uh, But there comes a point where people retire for for whatever reason, whether they want to or because they are compelled to do that. And then those same people who are conscientious, who have very good self-control, who make the distinction between capital and income, and they spend income, but they never dip into capital, now comes the time when they have to change habits radically and, and begin to dip into capital. And so if you have someone, say, who retired with $3 million, and let's say just stocks and bonds, let's say that the yield of each is 2%, then, and let's say that they are in their late 70s or 80s, uh, and they say, well, all I can spend from, from that money is is $60,000, $20,000 for each million dollars that I have. That really is, is ridiculous. This really is the time to break those old habits and, uh, that were so helpful in the past and i know how hard it is because i found myself breaking them uh myself uh, when when i failed to be upgraded on flights to israel and back and uh, you know I, I had decent seats in coach but <laughs> but i'm getting to be too old and quite uh, frankly too well off for for coach in on long flights and so Consciously, my wife and I said, enough of that. Uh, and so now we buy business class tickets when we go, when we go on long flights. Uh, and we have also increased our contributions to charity. To have, so, so we kind of pamper ourselves and we help people who can use some, some help. And so each of us, when we get to that age, and whether we are retired or not, uh, and we have the means, now has to figure out what brings him or her joy. In our case, it was flying in comfort and, and helping other people. For other people, it might be buying a second house, uh, taking a long cruise or, or whatever it is. But but instead of saying, no, I have to just keep that money, uh, you have to think about how you are going to increase your, your well-being you know, so so I, I say it is better to give with a warm hand than with a cold one. There's no point dying at ninety and leaving a good chunk of money to kids who are now in their sixties. Kids need the most help when they are, uh, say, right after college, thinking about graduate school, trying trying to figure out their way. Maybe are maybe, uh, hoping to buy a house. This really is where they need to. Uh, to have the help of their their parents. And so to my mind, there's too much emphasis on, hey, you're on your own, my kid. Uh, I worked hard and now you don't have to work hard. And saying, uh, have we raised responsible kids? Are we fortunate to have responsible kids? And if the answer is yes, then help them now without really endangering your retirement standard of living.
1: Has your research found that retirees make more optimal spending decisions in in places where healthcare is le- healthcare spends are less of an unknown, where long-term care is less of an unknown? That's a topic that we've returned to a number of times in this podcast. It seems like it greatly, greatly complicates the retirement planning process. And so it seems like one of the reasons why retirees might sit back on their haunches is because they don't want to spend given that huge unknown that potentially awaits them later in life. What do you think?
3: You know, sometimes I wonder what, whether this is anything more than an excuse not to spend. Yes, it, there are going to be medical costs. But, you know, if people really were concerned about medical costs, they would buy medical insurance, uh, long term care insurance. But people are reluctant to buy that. And people don't buy annuities either. Uh, even though that will assure them that even if they live to 120, they will be uh, covered. Uh, and so I think that that people just like that sense of comfort when they are sitting on a pile of money and they're not willing to part with. And and one thing that I remind, remind people is that the people who are going to help you most when you are old and frail and ill. Are uh, not the staff of the nursing home, but your kids. So you know, treat your kids well <laughs> because they are uh, a good chunk of your of your medical uh, insurance. So I, I think that the problem is really that switch from saving uh, to spending, spending responsibly. And and when I wrote about this issue in the Wall Street Journal some some two years ago, I got so many touching emails and responses, you know, people said, really, you changed my life. We have just made the decision, my wife and I, that we are going to now uh, begin enjoying our lives uh, and, and sharing with our family and so on, uh, because you pretty much need to kind of think about it and come to this, this cognitive decision that it was very good to have those habits of saving and not dipping into capital when you were young. This is why you have accumulated a good chunk of money. And now it is time to spend it responsibly. If you are really, really afraid of nursing home expenses, buy medical insurance. But I I think that for many people, this is just uh, an excuse not to spend.
2: So switching to more mundane matters related to retirement, what do you think about this bucket approach to retirement portfolio construction, sort of the time segmentation approach? How does it square in your eyes with some of the things that we've been talking about? Do you think it's a reasonable way to, to frame up how you might allocate a retirement portfolio?
3: Yes. Now, I, I, I think about it less in terms of units of time and more in units of of ones. And so, uh, as I like to say, with with obvious exaggeration, the two things we like, we want uh, one not to be poor and the other is to be rich. And so, if you think of your money as being one blob, you're missing something because we don't really have an attitude towards risk and we don't have this blob goal. If you have money and you separate it into your you're not being poor. That is, well, how much will I need to supplement my social security so I can live in comfort in retirement? And and you kind of figure out how much that is going to be. And then you have enough such that you can see that there will be money to, uh, for example, leave to the kids. That is really going to be a very useful way to think about about your money to, to have them as two buckets, one bucket for not being poor and another bucket to being rich. Uh, and then you can ask yourself, okay, so, so that bucket that is for being rich, let's say that it is uh, exclusively in stocks or, or the like, if the stock market goes down by 50%, will it be an injury to your downside protection? Is it going to drive you into poverty? Or is it uh, just going to hurt your ego because you're not as rich as you used to be? And if this is the case, then you can just kind of say to yourself, okay, stuff happens. And uh, if it is just an injury to my ego, I can repair that. And if it is to my standard of living in retirement, then I have to invest accordingly and put more money in the downside uh, protection account.
1: I want to return to a topic you mentioned just a few moments ago. That's annuities. And I think you also lumped in long term care. The idea is if we made fuller use of those sorts of tools, we might end up making more optimal spending decisions, right? Or derive greater emotional and other benefits from these choices that we're making. And so if you were to try to maybe create sort of tools or constructs to help investors to make better choices, to incorporate those sorts of tools into their planning. And what would that look like? Are there certain things that we could be doing to encourage prudent use of those sorts of tools that that are not currently being employed by advisors or just individuals that are planning their own retirements?
3: Well, I don't generally recommend annuities or even medical insurance. Uh, I don't have it myself. Uh, And so I can see it being useful for people who uh, with Social Security, and perhaps if they're fortunate, the pension need some more just to make sure that they're going to have some reasonable standard of living in, in retirement. But generally, people are quite responsible in, in spending. And so and, and so one of the things that I like to, to note is that in fact, what people do. Uh, in those layers of the portfolio, those mental accounts, buckets that, that we just talked about, that the equity in the house uh, is really playing a very important role. And contrary to some stories, most older people have, in fact, paid off their house rather than used it as, a, as an ATM. Uh, and what, what they want is to leave that house to their kids. Now, that is lovely. If it all works this way, that is great. But if not, they actually have a cushion to fall back on if, in fact, they, they, need, they, they live much longer than they expected, they need more medical help than, than they expected. Uh, and so the kids in this particular case will not have as much. And so, and so there are substitutes for a formal annuities and for formal medical insurance, Uh, And a lot of people are very comfortable managing their affairs this way, kind of watching how much they are spending, watching that reservoir of wealth they have and seeing whether they are dipping too much into it and so on. You know, I I think that, that we have to kind of get out of our own situations being typically upper middle class people. And think about, about people who have a whole lot more, and especially people who have a whole lot less. Uh, for many people, the question really is not, how much will I have in retirement? The question is, how will I, much will I have tomorrow? Uh, if if my car breaks down, will I have the money to fix it? And so we have to think about that well-being throughout life. Annuities can be useful in some cases, but that drive to annuitize, uh, that really comes kind of from standard finance in some way that says that, that we work during, during our early years, we accumulate money, and then we spend it in retirement. That is not really the case. For some people, you know, they just end up being misers. They, they just really uh, do the equivalent of counting their gold coins every night before they go to bed. Uh, and I say, well, you know... If this is what you want, fine, but I think that there are better uses for your money and better ways to plan than just buy annuities or or medical insurance.
1: Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, Mayor. Thank you so much for your time and insights and for joining us on The Long View.
2: Yes, thank you so much.
3: Well, I'm delighted to be with you both. Thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to and rate The Long View for Morningstar on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz.
1: And at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at thelongview@morningstar.com. Until next time... Thanks for joining us.
0: This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar, Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission.